We are in the book of Nahum, so you can open your Bibles there to the book of Nahum chapter 2. And I am constantly amazed at this short and relatively obscure book. Sometimes when we talk about preaching through the minor prophets as we are in Sojourners and in the providence of God, we are also preaching in minor prophets in evening service and in the providence of God. Joe and I are working on a commentary in the minor prophets all at the same time. And when we tell people this, they always come up to us and they say things like this. Oh, I love the minor prophets. Oh, Hosea. I love Hosea. I love Micah. Christmas in Micah. Who can beat that? And, and they talk about Jonah and they talk about Zechariah. And if they're really good, they talk about Malachi and things like that. <laughs> and then I say, hey, you like Nahum? And at that moment, they have this strange look on their face. It's a look of, I know the spiritual answer is to say, yes, it's wonderful. But at the same time in their heart, they're struggling to remember what this book is even about. It is a short book. And in many people's minds, it's an obscure book, but there is such profundity to this book. Every time we study the scripture, and I can attest every time I study the scripture personally, I see my life changed. You can even observe, I think, in my own life, after I've taught or preached through a certain book, there are things in my thinking, there are things in my mind that shift that grow deeper in conviction. And this book is one that has really, really riveted my own soul. And that is because this book has this very fundamental, profound message, which is that this is God's comfort through judgment. And this book is not just to be read by itself. It is to be read in comparison with its kind of twin sister book, which is the book of Jonah. Jonah preached to Nineveh. Nahum preaches to Nineveh. Both of these books preach to Nineveh. Two different messages. They are meant to be compared and contrasted with each other. But then on top of that, Nahum, as we will see and as we have seen, interfaces with so many other books of the Bible. It echoes, it repeats, it quotes from other books of Scripture. And so in one small book, this book does a lot. This book does a lot. It reaches far, it integrates, it incorporates, it is dense, it is profound. In a little bit, it conveys and communicates much. And it is helpful to remind ourselves of these insights, especially as we set up for the part of Nahum that we will be, which is Nahum chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. But again, it is helpful to build up the context to that point. And some of the profound lessons we have learned are this that we must have the full character of God. The full character of God. In Nahum chapter 1, we learn the full picture of who God is. Nineveh, they encounter God one way in the book of Jonah. They encounter God in his mercy. They encounter God in his patience. They encounter God in his grace. They found out, Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, that Yahweh is slow to anger. That's true. He is, but they needed to learn something else. He's great in power. They learned, yes, God is merciful, but Nahum chapter one, verse two, he is also a jealous and avenging God. You cannot just cherry pick or select the characteristics, the attributes of God that you like and think that that's the only way God will be to you. Yes, 
God rebukes the sea for Jonah, shows mercy to Jonah, but that doesn't mean he will always do so. Nahum 1 verse 4. God is good. Yahweh is good. Chapter 1 verse 7 of Nahum. Nineveh and Jonah experienced that, but you cannot presume on God that that's the way he will always be to you no matter what you do. Nineveh's problem is the problem of modern society, which can be our problem as well. We've seen God's mercy. We've seen God's patience. We've tasted of his daily goodness, his common grace to all mankind. And our assumption and our presumption is that's the way it always has to be for us. That's the way it always has to be for everyone. And if God ever shows a different side, a different perspective, a different angle, he's not fair. Nahum says to Nineveh, that's what you believed. I'm here to tell you, you have a slanted view of God. You need to know the whole story. You need to know who God totally is. Yes, is he merciful? Yes, is he gracious? Absolutely. But he's a jealous and avenging God. He's a God who's avenging and wrathful. He's a God who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He has a whirlwind and a storm that can save people, but he has a whirlwind and a storm that can destroy people. You need the complete picture of God. Sometimes our picture of God is far too limited, far too slanted, and far too small. We want Yahweh to be for us the vending machine that gives us what we want, the salve for our souls, and just to use him when it feels good and it feels right for us to come to him. Nahum reminds us, that is not who God is. You don't use him, he uses you. That's the way this works. God is God and man is man. And Nahum reminds us, do not have a skewed perspective of God. Now, this God, who is a total divinity, who is himself in fullness, he's going to do something. And that's what the rest of chapter 1 is about. And in doing something, in judging, while we might think judgment is harsh, and while we might think judgment is terrible, and while we might think judgment is harmful, it actually brings comfort. And Nahum shows Israel how even a terrible-looking situation like judgment can bring consolation to the soul. Why? Because it reveals God's character. We saw that in Nahum chapter 1. Why? Because it also, as you see in Nahum 1 verse 14, it brings the reality that God keeps his promises. Notice chapter 1 verse 14. He says this, There will no longer be seed from your name. And he talks about how you are contemptible or cursed. Those are words found in God's promises to Israel. And while Assyria will be brought down, they won't have a seed, they won't have a name, they will be cursed, Israel has a seed. Israel has a name, just like God promised. And Israel sees the fulfillment or a fulfillment of what God expressed to them long, long ago in Abraham. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. They see that. They see that God keeps his promises. Sometimes when we watch the news, sometimes in our own lives, 
Here's our problem. We get shocked by what happens, and we fail to see, actually, that God is doing exactly what he said he would do. We fail to recognize that God is exactly doing what he said he would do in his word. It works. It's true. And then, even when we fail to recognize that, and even if we did not fail to recognize that. We, we saw it and we say, oh yes, God, his, his work is true. His word came to pass. Sometimes we fail to remember it. That's our problem. And when the next trial comes and when the nif- next difficulty happens and we're wondering, is God faithful? We forget all the different times in life, all the different times that are historically fact that God actually acted on our behalf, that he was faithful. We forget about that. And so we wonder if God will help us the next time around when all he has done in our entire life, the only reason we are here is because he has been faithful every single time. His track record is perfect. Nahum says, when you look at Nineveh, Israel, don't just think, ooh, they got it bad. Look at it and realize I kept my promise to you. And remember that in keeping my promise to you, I'm faithful. That brings comfort. It isn't just that God's character is revealed. It isn't just that his promises are upheld. It is that now you have confidence his prophecy will even take place. Chapter 1, verse 15, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace. If you've read your Old Testament a little bit, you'll remember these phrases. They're not from the book of Nahum. Nahum is quoting the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. And here is Nahum's logic. As Israel hears the news that Nineveh is destroyed, it's good news. What they are going to have is kind of a reverse deja vu. I know deja vu is about things talking about the past, but at this moment, they're going to have a reverse deja vu. They're going to realize that what's happening here is a taste of the future, what Isaiah prophesied. And they're going to realize that God gave them a near prophecy, a prophecy in their immediate future, the destruction of Nineveh, to guarantee and to prove and to illustrate what God would do in the absolute future. That one day, there will be a messenger, and he will proclaim good news, and he will announce peace. And that word, good news, in Greek is actually the word gospel. Gospel. When Israel sees the destruction of Nineveh and they hear about it, they would understand that everything God said about the future, it's true. Just as the destruction of Nineveh is a historical fact, so in the same way, everything God prophesies in his word will play out in history just the same manner. Lots of lessons here. Lots of lessons. We talk about God's character. We talk about how he does something, and it affirms things like his promises and his prophecies. And here's what's fascinating. God doesn't just theorize that this will happen from his character or theorize that he'll do something relative to his nature, but he actually gives a precise prophecy of what will take place, and that's in chapter 2. This is exactly what he will do to Nineveh. And on one hand, on one hand, if you read Nahum, rather, chapter 2, 1 through 7, what you will see is an absolute devastating prophecy against Nineveh, how it will be totally destroyed, how even though they tried to fortify their city and make their defenses strong and everything, 
they will be overrun and no one will survive. And so we know, yes, God has a total sovereign, a total devastating judgment. This is true. But here's what's absolutely fascinating in it, and you can't miss this. As was preached the last time on Nahum 2, there is this language. It's even found in Nahum 2, verse 2. You can read it in your text. Even those who empty them have emptied them to destruction. The word empty in Hebrew is the word book, 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 book. You should remember that word. Because that's the word of how a bottle, when it is emptied of water, sounds. In fact, even in modern Hebrew, the word for bottle is bakbuk. For that very reason. Because it sounds like it is. It's onomatopoeic. When you empty a bottle of water, it's bok, 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 bok. We know that. And you say, okay, I guess that just means they're totally emptied. They're totally destroyed. They're totally quashed. You're right. But remember how Nineveh was destroyed. Nineveh was destroyed because, as the text says, verse 6 of chapter 2, the gates of the river are opened and the palace is melted away. Nineveh, it falls because it is flooded. It falls because all the water rushes through the city, tearing down the walls, making it vulnerable, and allowing the enemy to get in and forcing all the people to run from the tsunami of the waters. That's how it falls. That's a precise prophecy if you think about it. And that is a unique prophecy if you think about it. You say, how so? Because normally in a siege, the way things happen is that you just sit there and you do nothing and you wait for the people to starve. And when they get super duper hungry, then you go and attack them and that's how the city falls. In fact, what you usually attack a city with at that point is fire because fire burns things down. It's like rock, paper, scissors, but in ancient Near Eastern siege warfare. You always use fire. But what is this text saying? It's not fire, it's what? Water. And it's not about people going in, it's about water coming out. It's about things that are totally contrary to what any human being would anticipate. Most people would think that if your city is surrounded by water, that's a moat. That's what defends you. It's not what destroys you. But here, this prophecy is so bizarre. It is so distinctive. It is so different. It is absolutely making an astonishing claim. No human, if they had to make a projection, would project this way. No human would rationalize this. No human would anticipate this. No human would predict this. This is completely exceptional. And here's what you have to know. Nahum, based upon some details that happened in chapter 3, We know the date. Everybody knows the date of this book. That is and cannot be in dispute. It is minimum 50 years before Nineveh's destruction. Minimum 50 years or so before Nineveh's destruction. Everyone, and I mean everyone, agrees on that. And here's what they also agree on. The way Nineveh was destroyed was by exactly the way Nahum said. That's what they agree on. 
So walk through this with me and understand the uniqueness of this passage. Nahum chapter 2 prophesies Nineveh's destruction in a way no human being would ever guess. Nahum chapter 2 is written before Nineveh's destruction. And Nahum chapter 2 is exactly, precisely, to the detail, exactly what happens to Nineveh. Do you see what happens to a skeptic at this moment? Do you see what happens to a liberal theologian at this moment? I sometimes read those individuals because for my job. And... And here's what they say about Nahum 2. This is exactly what happened to Nineveh. It is prophesied before Nineveh is destroyed. And? Now you believe in Jesus? They don't say that part. They have no explanation. They have no way. Often, they will try to argue, oh, it was prophecy after the fact. Oh, this is source this and redaction that and, and all kinds of excuses. No excuse here. They have no explanation. They just say, this is exactly how Nineveh was destroyed, and it was predicted this way. That's it. They have no explanation. Here's what you need to know. Nahum 2 is one of the most powerful apologetic passages in all of Scripture. Nahum 2 is one of the most powerful apologetic passages of all of Scripture because in it, is an irrefutable prophecy of absolute precision that we know happened before the event took place. It could not be written after the fact, and it actually happens exactly this way without refutation. That is the power of Nahum chapter 2. Sometimes people wonder, oh, I I would like to see illustrated the power, the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture. Go to Nahum chapter 2. Go to Nahum chapter 2. There's no other explanation. No one has another explanation except for one explanation that some will not say, but we will definitely say here, God. God. That's the only explanation. That's the only explanation. And God did that on purpose. God did that on purpose because his point in Nahum 2 in giving this amazing prophecy that can be only explained by him is to give his people assurance, I am in control. And if I can do this in the near term, then can't you trust me to keep every promise in the far term? If I'm the only explanation, if I'm the only one who could come up with this, if no one else could posit this, if no one else could predict this, if no one else could anticipate this, if no one else could control it this way, if I'm the only one, then this is the near prophecy that proves the far prophecy par excellence. And that is Nahum's point. Now, at this moment in the book, you say, okay, God has revealed his character. He's shown how his character will manifest in action, and he's given this amazing apologetic passage. What else can he do? Well, I mean, what, what else are you going to talk about in this book? Nineveh's destroyed. Well, what are you also going to say? Well, that's a good question. Why are there two more chapters, more or less, or one and a half more chapters? You could just stop it there. You could. But God has more to say because he wants us to look at Nineveh more carefully. And it's helpful to walk backwards through this book from chapter 3 at the end all the way to the passage that we're doing right now. And let me just give you a brief overview. The very ending of Nahum chapter 3 is about one key idea, that you cannot escape God's judgment. How often do people say, yeah, that happened to them, but it won't happen to me. They live in denial. Nahum chapter 3 at the end destroys people who live in denial. It shows you God's wrath is inescapable. 
God's wrath is unavoidable. You, don't, you cannot outsmart him. You cannot outwit him. You cannot oppose him. You, you are not the exception to the rule. There are no exceptions to the rule. That is what the end of Nahum 3 shows. The beginning of Nahum 3 shows this, that God, when he judges the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh, that he judges them in a way for their international sins. For their international sins. You say, why does he judge them for their international sins? Well, one, because they sinned against a lot of other nations. And what nation do you think that God is focused on in particular that they sinned against? The nation of? Israel. And God is saying to Israel, look at the judgment of Nineveh. Look at how it happened. Do you see that I cared about what happened to you? Do you see that I got vengeance for what they did against you, my own people? Do you see that I love you? that I cared about you, that I wasn't ignorant of what took place, but rather I designed their downfall so that they would know and I would be satisfied and you would know that I cared every moment about what was being done against you. God is a true God of justice. Sometimes we look at an event and we just say, well, that was terrible, and we don't realize that God designed every part of it to accomplish his purpose and will. Now, if the beginning of chapter 3 talks about God's judgment of them on an international level for their international sins, what do you think chapter 2, verses 8 through 13 is about? Not international, but national. About what this happens to this nation. About what happens in the nation. And the logic is simply this, that relative to this nation... For this time, in the immediate term, they will never rise again. And they will never hurt you, Israel, ever again. And they will never be able to harm you, ever, at least in the immediate moment. They are completely dismantled, disabled, incapacitated. And that's not just a comforting thought for Israel. That's a comforting thought for anybody. And the logic of that is for Everyone, we can resonate with that terminology. Kids can. How often does a kid get hurt with anything? Toys, furniture, Legos, bees. And what do we say after they're stung? They say, will that bee ever hurt me again? And what do we say? No, it'll never hurt you again. The bee is dead. It's gone. You don't need to be scared. You don't need to fear. And we laugh because we know that that's how you comfort kids. And then we, we, we though forget that adults are the same way. They just have a more sophisticated way of doing it and of saying it. For example, we talked about kids getting hurt by their own toys. We get hurt by kids' toys. They're on the ground. You step on one. Ow! And you're so in pain and you're struggling in your sanctification to be patient. And what do you say? Kids, put your toys away. Why do you say that? So the toy will never hurt you again. That's why. If you didn't care about that, you just say, keep leaving them on the floor. It's fine. Not a big deal. Kids and adults are all the same way. We want to know, we want to know, will the enemy ever be able to hurt us again? 
And here's what God says, watch me destroy this city and watch me show you they will never hurt you again. That's the justice of God. That brings comfort. And remember what Nahum's name means. It means comfort. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the shattering judgment of God. But I have to say one more thing before we actually get into the text. And that is this, that we must remember as we go through this text, as we survey through verses 8 through 13, there is an important logic that we need to have, which is the near prophecy that sets up for the far prophecy. To help you understand it, the best analogy I can give is walking through Costco. At Costco, there are these things, at least pre-COVID, maybe they've returned after COVID, that they are called samples. And I constantly tease college students that they really just get Costco memberships as an inexpensive way to have lunch every day. (laughs) And upon me teasing them once, some other individuals of different age groups came up to me and said, but but we do the same thing. You can't just pick on the college students. Fine, Costco is a restaurant. But the logic is this at Costco. It's not really supposed to be a restaurant. Maybe it is. There's a debate about that. We don't need to get into business strategy. But in any case, the logic is simply this. You take a sample. You get a taste of something. And the hope is that you would buy the whole, the whole item. It would not be the logic is that you get another sample. The logic is that you get the whole item. Nahum is worded. Nahum is articulated in a way that gives you a taste of what is to happen in the future. And when you see Nahum, and again, Nahum happened. It's history. No one refutes that. No one disputes that. It's in the history books, exactly like Nahum says when we talk about the destruction of Nineveh. It's a fact. And if that's a fact, and since that is a fact, then you know God can do it all the way. And that is how Nahum 8 through 13 works. Yes, the bad guy, he won't harm you in the near term. You can get comfort from that, but you can get even more comfort knowing this. And God will do that on a grander scale. You just got a sample of what is to come. That's the logic of Nahum chapter 2, 8 through 13. And there are a lot of verses here. So there are actually five points for how this is going to work. And with the time remaining, we approximately have one minute per point. Just kidding. Uh, (laughs) But almost. So here we go. Let's talk about the points. First, how does God bring down the foe so they will not hurt you? He destroys their pride. He destroys their pride. Look at Nahum chapter 2, verse 8. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water... Nineveh was surrounded by rivers. Nineveh always had water. Nineveh was a city that had its pride because it was an oasis. It was a resort town. It was a town of trade and commerce because you always need water to survive. And so Nineveh became soon a a hub for all kinds of activity, both pleasure and business, because it was surrounded by a pool of water. It was like a pool of water. It was a resort, and it's throughout her days. This is even recorded in the book of Genesis. 
the book of Genesis, from the book of Genesis, from the very beginning, from after the flood time, when cities started to creep up and crop up, Genesis 10, verse 11, Nineveh was always known to be this center, to be a place of resort, of rest, of respite, of profitability, because it was a place where there was lots of water. People went there. People went there. That's what we know. And Nineveh boasted in this reputation. That's their pride. But notice the next phrase. Now they are fleeing. They're running away. Now, within this, there there is an irony to this. There is a reversal to this. Because people used to go to Nineveh, and now what are they doing? They're running away. But that's indicative of another reversal, which is this. Why are they running away from Nineveh? How was Nineveh destroyed? By a what? By a flood. God said, what you thought was your pride, what you thought was your greatest strength, that you had so much water, I will use it to destroy you. What attracted all these people to come to you will be what drives them to flee from you. I'll turn it all around for you. You will have no more pride. And that's exactly what you see in the rest of this verse. There is this call, stand, stand. This is the summon to the soldiers. And this appeals to one's inner sense of honor, inner sense of dignity, inner sense of courage. You see this kind of language in Lord of the Rings with Aragorn. He's riding his horse. Today is not that day. We're not going to lose. Let's go charge the Black Gate. You know, things like that. You see it not only with Aragorn, you see it in athletics. The quarterback, the coach, he's giving this riling speech. And we're going to do this and we're going to win and we're going to defend and we're going to keep pressing on. And everyone's like, yes, let's do it. Here, there is stand, stand. And what doesn't happen in the movies and what doesn't happen on the athletic field happens here. No one stands. No one stands. No one, when Aragorn is riding, says to Aragorn, well, that was a great speech. I mean, you're going to win an Emmy, but I'm leaving. And then they just turn their horse and go away. And no one on the athletic field tells the coach, that was beautiful. You should present that at a college seminar but I'm not going to play anymore. I quit. This is just, we're just going to lose. If they said that, they have lost all sense of inner courage and pride. And that's what these soldiers have. They're being called. They're being summoned. They have these courageous speeches, stand, stand, and they don't. They have no pride. They did have pride, but they lost it. And it's not just that they lost pride, It's that the whole city has no pride. You say, how so? Look at the last phrase. But no one turns back. This is the moment that all the soldiers, they're running out of the city, and they don't even bother to look to their left or the right or behind them. Why? Because there's nothing left there for them. If you want a quick analogy of this, it reminds me a little bit of what children do with parents. When you first drop your children off in the nursery, they start crying. Yes, it's painful. And what are they always doing? They're looking at you as you're leaving and you're looking at them and you don't want to go and they don't want you to go, but you have to go. So you go, it's painful. But there's a point where things change. And then all of a sudden the kid says, bye mom, bye dad. And they just run into the nursery. They run into children's ministry and they don't look back. 
Why is that? Because they don't care about you anymore. (laughs) No one turns back for Nineveh now. They don't care about Nineveh. The city that attracted so many people, the city that had such pride, the city that had such strength, the city that had such beauty and wealth, where people would look back, where people did care about it, no more. No more. It's ended because God ended it. God put down their pride. And on one hand, here's what you need to realize. This is just an illustration of pride goes before the fall. Nineveh thought that their water would protect them, that their water would sustain them, that their water would bring them wealth and security. And what did God use that to do? He used it to destroy them. Sometimes we, in our own pride, we think we're so strong. We think we have invulnerabilities. We think we're invincible. We think we have all these assets and all these advantages, and we cannot be brought down. We are too big to fail. Know this. You are never too big to fail. Because everything before God that you think is strong is actually your greatest weakness. And that is why we always go to God humble. Because there is no such thing as a person in and of themselves who is strong before God. That's just pride, and it'll lead to your fall. If God can turn what's supposed to deliver Nineveh into what destroys Nineveh, what do you think he can do in your own life? At the same time, here's what God says to Israel. They'll never attack you again. Why? They don't have the pride to attack you. They don't have the inner resolve to attack you. They won't hurt you. They won't hurt you now. That's comfort. That's comfort. Well, it's not just that he destroys their pride. It's that he destroys their prosperity. He destroys their prosperity. Verse 9. You can read the text, and it says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold, no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. Of course, this deals with money. Of course, this deals with prosperity. Of course, this deals with riches. And fundamentally, what we need to understand overall from this is that it costs money to run a war. I don't know if you've been thinking about that in light of present circumstances, but it costs money to run a war. People don't fight for free, and it costs Lots of money. It's expensive to actually equip an army properly for battle and to sustain that. It costs money to wage a war. It's for this very reason, even in the modern state of Israel, that they don't let their wars last long because everyone at that moment is part of the military and their whole economy is at a standstill. So they'll run out of money too quickly if the war wages too long. Wars are expensive. They cost money. And if you take away all the money from Nineveh, if you take away all the money from Assyria, they can never hurt you again. They don't have the money to do that. They don't have the resources to do that. And that is what God is saying overall here. It is the destruction of their prosperity. But notice what happens within this plunder, the silver, it says, plunder the gold. The word plunder is also found in Amos chapter 3, verse 11. Amos chapter 3, verse 11, you say, so what? That's what God prophesies Assyria will do to Israel. You will be plundered by them. Now they are going to be what? 
plundered. Why does that matter? Because God says this. God says this. What happened to you, Israel? I will get vengeance for that. What they did against you, all the atrocities they committed against you, I have seen it. And what terrible things were done against you will be the same terrible things done against them. Sometimes we wonder, does God see our suffering? Does he care? Will he make that right? And Nineveh is a proof. Nineveh is a proof. God does. God will. He doesn't just know generally that things went bad. He knows exactly the way they went wrong, and he will deal with every one of those wrongs. Israel, you were plundered. I know. I know exactly what it was like. I know exactly what it felt like. I know exactly what happened. Why? How do you know that? Because I'll make sure it happens to them the exact same way. That's justice. And it's comprehensive because they're not just plundering the silver, they're plundering the gold. It's everything, everything. And it's not just that God now will disable the enemy because he strips them of their resources, showing vengeance and establishing justice thereby. It's on top of that something more. Notice the next phrases of verse 9. And there is no limit to the treasure. To understand the kind of sentiments said here, you, you have to go back to the good old days where there were these things called toy stores. You know, Amazon's a wonderful thing, but, but it, it can't supplant the reality of what children felt when they walked into a toy store for the first time. Yes, it was sinful. It is the excitement of greed and lack of self-control. I fully concur. It caused anger when you, as a parent, were trying to restrain them. I fully acknowledge all of those things, but tucked within all of that iniquity is the reality of awe. From one end of a building to another, toys. And even if you didn't like the toy, it was still amazing. The people plundering Assyria say this, there's no limit to the treasure. Assyria has gathered all the wealth of the world from one end of heaven to the other, and they cannot see the end. There is no limit of their storehouses of riches. No limit. It's amazing what this one country, this superpower has done in its accumulation of wealth by conquest. After all, like verse 9 says, it's wealth from every kind of desirable object. Anything you wished for, they took it because they wished for it too, and they got it. But here's what's interesting about this language. Here's what's absolutely fascinating. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 9, it says this, that the wealth of the nations will go into Jerusalem. They will bring all of their wealth to that one city. And here's what Haggai 2.7 says. Haggai 2.7, listen to the wording carefully. All the desirable things of the nations will go into you, O Jerusalem. What did you hear the word? All the desirable things. What do you read in Nahum chapter 2, verse 9? Wealth from every kind of desirable object. Same word. What is God doing? The nations think they're gathering up all the treasures. The nations think they're assembling all the wealth. The nations think they're getting everything for themselves. God says, actually, I'm gathering everything for my people. 
for my people. That's what's really going on. Yes, Israel, you will not be hurt by Assyria now. Why? Because they have no money to do that. But don't miss this. What is going on is a wealth transfer. That's true. And don't be nervous because of that. Because what this shows is that God is sovereign over all the wealth of all the nations, and he has a plan. And he has a plan to move all those things ultimately and give them as a reward to his people in the millennial kingdom in the end, the nation of Israel. There was hope. There is hope. And if you wonder, could God really do that? Could God really overturn all the nations of the world and make them give their treasures to the nation of Israel in the future? He did. He did it in a sample in the past with the nation of Assyria in the city of Nineveh because they lost all their wealth. They thought they could hold on to it, but they couldn't. No one can. God is sovereign, and he will do exactly what he promised. Well, God will destroy pride. He will destroy prosperity. He will even destroy prowess. Prowess. And we can see that in verse 10. Verse 10. Here's what the text says. She is emptied. Yes, she is emptied out and eviscerated. Here is where the Legacy Standard Bible does a good job. (laughs) You may not have that nice alliteration of emptied, emptied, eviscerated, but you should. And you say, why? Because the Hebrew reads like this. Bukah, mebukah, mebulakah. You say, wow, that kind of sounds the same. It even sounds a little bit more dramatic. Yes, that's the emphasis. This is a threefold attack, all the same way. Just like in Hebrew, it's alliterated, so it's alliterated in English. She is emptied. Yes, she is emptied out and eviscerated. Why? Because there's a threefold emptying. If you've ever tried to empty a bottle, you know sometimes that there's some, a little bit of liquid left within and it kind of gets annoying. So you just have to kind of shake it, stomp on it, throw it up in the air, whatever, to really make sure it gets out. And God says, I'll do that three times just to make sure it's all gone. That's how well I'm going to destroy Nineveh. That's, all, that's how I'm going to disable their power. And of course, the irony of this is we know why the language of buka, mebuka, and mebulaka is used because it sounds like a bottle, what? Emptying, which reminds you how Nineveh was destroyed. And how was it destroyed? Via a flood. God will flood every drop of water through this city and wash it out. So it is completely destroyed. God is emphasizing the uniqueness, the apologetic value of this prophecy. And he will truly destroy Nineveh. He will truly disable them. And you can read it in the rest of verse 10. Hearts are melting. God starts with the inside. While we might tease Disney movies for people saying, oh, it's all in your heart and just follow your heart. And if your heart does this, you'll be able to win. That's not true. But if God takes away the courage of the heart, no one can stand. No one can stand. There's a reason in Christianity why perseverance is not determined by your physical strength, but by your internal spirit trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. Because perseverance is not decided by your physical might. It is always decided by your spiritual resilience in Christ. You take that away, it's over. It's over. 
So hearts have melted away like wax before the sun. It's dissipated. It's nothing. And so they can't even stand. Notice this. People's knees are now what? Knocking. You can't stand when your knees are knocking, so you have to sit. Oh, well, you can't sit very well either because also anguish is in all their loins, as the text says. The word anguish is actually the term for childbearing. When you are in labor. Now, granted, no man, no man has ever been in labor. And women rightfully tease their husbands about the fact that they really don't know true pain. True. So you can imagine if a man experienced that kind of pain, how disabled he would be. That's what's happening here. They're not going to be able to do anything. They're going to be worthless, exactly. And that's why the anguish is in all their loins, because earlier in chapter 2, God told Nineveh, strengthen your loins for battle. Strengthen the parts of your body that are needed and required for you to fight for battle. And now what does God acknowledge? You won't be able to in the end. You'll be so filled with anguish, you will be totally paralyzed. You say, "What? okay, so you can't stand, you can't sit, so what are you doing now? You're lying down, yes? Well, what happens when you lie down? All their faces turn pale. The word turn pale actually has the notion of shining. Have you ever seen somebody with such a high fever, it looks like they're irradiating heat, and it looks like they're very, very pale? You know it's bad when that happens. That's what these people are like. They are like when someone is seized with that kind of intense fever. And when somebody is that sick, what do all they do? They just lie on the bed and they say things like this. Don't touch me. Don't talk to me. Don't get near me. And they can't even move. These people, there's these soldiers, you thought they could hurt you, Israel. They're completely disabled. They can't stand. They can't sit. And they can barely even just lie down. They're on death's row. They're on their deathbed. That's what they look like. They have no power. No power. That's how much terror has seized them. That's how much pain has seized them. Are they going to be able to hurt you again? Well, can a person with 110 fever hurt you? No. Israel, you're fine. You're safe. And you say, wow, God really enacted severe devastation against these people. That's true. But there's a reason for this, and there's a lot of hope in this. Do you notice in the opening of verse 10, we even made mention and emphasis on it, that it repeats, emptied, emptied, and eviscerate. There's a lot of focus on this, and there's a reason for that. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, and it says this, the whole world will be emptied to destruction. What word do you hear in that? The word emptied. Just like in verse 10 of Nahum 2, the word emptied. Now, here's the question. Why does God want to empty the whole world? Why does God want to empty the whole world to destruction? Out of all the words for destruction, why use that one in Isaiah 24? What's the opposite of emptying? Filling. Think about the book of Isaiah. What phrase talks about something filling the whole earth? The glory of God, the glory of Yahweh. I saw the Lord seated on his throne, and the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why does God empty the earth in Isaiah 24? To fill it with his glory. 
And here is what God says. If you think I can't destroy an enemy so terribly, so massively, that they are completely emptied out, if you don't think that I could truly fill this whole earth with all my glory, look at Nineveh. Did I not decimate them? And he did. Like I said, Nineveh was a perpetual ruin for a long, long period of time. Archaeology confirms that. There was not a trace of them. That's how he leveled them out through the water. God will empty the earth. That's what he shows. One day, I'll do what I did to Nineveh, to the whole world. But not just so that it remains a desolate wasteland, but rather so that I will fill it with my glory. Could you imagine end to end this whole world filled with all that God is, all of his goodness, all of his mercy, all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of his perfection, all of his righteousness, all of his holiness, all of his joy. Could you imagine end-to-end heaven? You say, that's too good to be true. No, it will happen. How do you know? Because he showed you a taste of it, a part of it, right here with Nineveh. That gives comfort. That gives comfort. He will destroy prowess so that he will fill the earth with his glory. Here's the fourth one, the destruction of prominence. The destruction of prominence. Notice that God, he's going to tear down these lions now. These lions are leaders, and we all know that leaders are people who carry such influence, who are really the culprits behind national atrocities because they help scheme and promote and drive them. We understand people like Hitler or Stalin or others who have engaged in such atrocities and calamities. And here's what God is saying. I destroyed Nineveh and I took out those leaders. These leaders are made analogous with lions because in Assyrian pictures even, leaders and kings were made to look like lions, and that's actually a biblical theme. More on that later. But God is saying, these lions, these leaders, they're destroyed. They have no home to where, from which to attack you. Where is the den of lions? They have no ability to raise up new generations of individuals. That's why there's no feeding place for the young lions. They have no freedom, no opportunity to hurt you, Israel. That's why it says, where is the lion, the lioness, and the lion's cub proud. There's no place for them to move around and have their freedom and do whatever they want. That's gone. And it's not just that they have no home, no provision, no freedom. They have no supremacy with nothing to make them tremble. That's what the last phrase says. Why does that matter? Because they were the always the ones that intimidated other nations. Now they're the ones who are intimidated. They have no ability to frighten you anymore, Israel, because they're the ones who are frightened. These leaders are completely disabled. They have nothing. They can do nothing anymore like they did before. Yes, in the past, verse 12, they tore enough for its cubs. Yes, in the past, they strangled enough. They tried to accumulate their wealth via violence. Yes, in the past, they filled its lair with torn up prey and its den with torn up flesh. Yes, in the past, they did all this violence as they tore up all the nations to put in their homes, put in their palaces, put in their cities, provision and wealth. They did that in the past, but that was the past. These leaders, they're gone. They're gone. And what Israel needed to see and what Israel needed to hear is all these past kings who terrorized them, they're all dead. 
They're all dead. They can't hurt you anymore. But there is something more to it than this. Notice the word lion repeated all throughout this. And what's the question we should ask? Why does the text talk about a lion? You could just say princes. We got a word for that. You could say kings. We got a word for that in Hebrew. Why make it like a lion? Because God is making a point. He's made some prophecies. And he said this, Assyria was like a lion, Isaiah 5. Babylon was like a lion, Jeremiah 49, 19. Egypt was like a lion, Ezekiel chapter 32. And if these lions fall, all those lions will also what? Fall as well. God will tear down every nation. God will tear down every leader. And this is what he says, though, about Israel. In Micah 5, verse 8, in Numbers 23, he says this about Israel. Israel, though, will be like a lion. And even more, Israel's leader will be like a lion. And we know where this is going. Revelation 5, what is our Lord Jesus Christ called? The lion. The lion of Judah. The lion of David. What does God show here? I will tear down every ruler. They will not hurt you, Israel. That's true. But don't miss the big picture. I will tear down every lion. There will be no surviving lions. There will be no surviving leaders except for the one lion, the lion who rules over all, the lion of Judah, the one who is worthy to receive the scroll. That will be the one who receives it all. Don't miss the big picture, Israel. And if you wonder, wait, can God really do that? Can God really tear down everything so that only his son remains, he says, look at Nineveh. I did it already. You saw a sample of that. And if I can do it there, and since it is a fact, then of course I can do it all the way. That is what God intends. Now, all this is backed by a divine pronouncement. A divine pronouncement, verse 13. God has taken out their pride. He's taken out their prosperity. He's taken out their prowess. He's taken out their preeminence. He's taken out their preeminence, verses 11 and 12. And now he makes a divine pronouncement. Why does all this take place? One phrase, verse 13. Behold, I am against you. God does it all. That's why declares the Yahweh of hosts, I will burn up her chariots in smoke. I did that. A sword will devour your young lions. We remember hearing about the young lions. God says, I did that. I will cut off your prey from the land. That's mentioned earlier. God does that. He does every single thing. What we need to remember is the nature of the sovereignty of God. God is not just a God who does some things. And they're random things. And everyone else does other things. And you can chalk other things up to random chance. No, God's sovereignty means this. I claim responsibility ultimately for every single thing that happens. That's the nature of his sovereignty. That's what he says. Behold, I am against you. That's why, Nineveh, this is happening. It's not because there was some political, economic, or military strategy that bested you. It is because God was behind it. That's the nature of his sovereignty. But don't miss this. This is beautiful. Notice what he says. Behold, he doesn't just say, I'm sovereign, or I caused this. Behold, I am what? Against you. Now, why is God against Nineveh? You might say, because they sinned. That's true. But why is he specifically against Nineveh? Because they sinned against his people. And at this moment, you realize what God is telling Israel. I always cared about you. 
I always was fighting for you. I did all this, and my sovereignty isn't just sovereignty. It is sovereignty on behalf of my people, whom I made promises to. I am against them because I am for you. That is the nature of God's sovereignty. Sometimes we think, yes, God is in control, and you are absolutely right. But what we fail to remember is that God's sovereignty is predetermined in his own will by his own loyalty and his own determination and his own promises and his own guarantees to us. He is sovereign, and he is sovereignly for us, and that is why he is sovereignly against others. That is what is going on in the text. And in the end, because God is so sovereign this way, notice the last line of verse 13. And no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. You know, this is a very fascinating phrase. Why silence the messenger? I mean, don't we say, don't shoot the messenger? Here, God is shooting the messenger. How is that nice? There's a reason. There's a reason. Because Assyrian messengers, they gave all kinds of messages. They were dubious. They were deceitful. They were blasphemous. Even you can read some about that in 2 Kings 18 and 19. But go back a page or so. Go back a chapter or so. There's only one message that he wants to get out. There's only one messenger that he wants. Nahum 1 verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who proclaims good news. Who announces, the word announce actually means cause to be heard. What is he causing to hear? Peace. You won't hear any messengers anymore, Israel. Assyria, you won't have any more messengers anymore. Why? Because in the end, there will be one message and one messenger, and he's proclaiming what? Good news. And we already said what the good news ultimately is. In fact, the whole New Testament declaration is based upon this passage and the passage earlier in Isaiah. The word good news is our word, the gospel. There will only be one message in the end. There will only be one messenger in the end. And God says, and that is the message of the gospel and its fulfillment and its triumph. That's what's going to be there. And you say, but how could that be? There's all these obstacles and there's all these nations. God says, look at Nineveh. I ended them. I stopped that messenger. And if I can do it with that mighty nation, I can do it what? With everyone. And this is going to be the end. The end will be there will be one line. The end will be there will be one message. The end will be that there will be only the gospel. The end will be that God's glory will fill the earth and there will be nothing left of any enemy or any opponent. Why? Because God, that's how he designed the shattering judgment over evil. And if you wonder again, can that really be? Can that really happen? Look at Nineveh. That's a fact. That's history. No one disputes that. It's that certain. And if it's that certain, so is our hope. And that's our comfort. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you. Thank you for this amazing work. And when we are tempted to doubt, when we are tempted to shrink back, when we are tempted to lose heart, remind us, you have kept your promises. They are a fact They are not just nice hyperbole or nice poems. They are a matter of truth and reality. And therefore, just as Nineveh, these things happened to it, we know it happened to it. Help us then to realize that we know 
all the good things you have in store for those who love you. Thank you that you are not just sovereign, but you are sovereign on our behalf. And it is for your glory we pray all these things. Amen.